Matthew is a, is a different book than Luke, uh, but there's, there's four Gospels. There's four books of the Bible that, that talk about the person and work of Jesus. And so Matthew's he's a, a, a Jewish guy. He, that's his background. And so uh, Luke, as we've been studying it, he's not a, he was not a Jew. He was a uh, Gentile. So he was writing particularly to the, an audience that, uh, that, that he wanted to strengthen people's faith. He had a friend named Theophilus, and so he was not a, a, a Jewish dude either. He was a guy who got saved, perhaps a new convert, and so Luke's gospel was to investigate the claims of Jesus in order to strengthen the faith of his friend uh, Theophilus. Uh, Matthew's, his, his objective is, uh, is also to uh, tell the story of the person and work of Jesus, but he gives some, some details, some specific detail that even includes some of the Jewish history. And so what we're, the reason why we're looking at Matthew chapter 2 today is because uh, Matthew tells of what happened immediately after Jesus' birth. So Luke got us all the way up to the birth of Jesus, and then he moves into the, uh, the, uh, Jesus being presented in the temple and then the early ministry of Jesus pretty quickly. Matthew tells us of the events that happened now uh, that were particular, especially to Jewish history, around Jesus' birth, just after his birth. And so what we're going to look at today is uh, that, that Matthew is telling the same story that we've been hearing of and, and seeing the big reality that Jesus is the rightful king. Uh, but now we're going to look at what is the response, the cultural response around that. What is the governing rulers of the time? What do they think about this big idea that Jesus is the true-born king? And so if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. This is what we're looking at. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? See, Jesus is, is quote, born king. He's the true born king. And the, these wise men, they say, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Jesus demands our worship. He, they're coming to worship the true born king. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he acquired of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by, by no means are the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." This is the, this is the, the scene that we, we find ourselves in. Jesus has been born. The news has spread. There are men who are uh, from the east. We'll talk about them in a, in a minute. They're called wise men. They've come to Bethlehem, or they've come to Jerusalem seeking this true-born king to worship him. That's the scene. Jesus was born king. He is king. He will always be king. He was not born to be a king. That is bit, he is born actually king. And that's been the big theme throughout our study uh, uh, over the Christmas season that Jesus reigns, that Jesus is actually king, not just theoretically, not merely king of your heart, though he is. He is, he is the king and ruler of everyone and everything. This is why at the end of Matthew's gospel, when he says, all authority in heaven on, on earth has been given to me to go and make disciples, what we know is that now the great commission, it was given to us in the context of Jesus being the rightful ruling king, the all authority of heaven and on earth is given to Jesus. And so this is what, what the, where, where we find ourselves. And so Jesus is born in the city of Bethlehem. We learned that last week. We talked about the details of that. We looked at Micah chapter 5. Moreover, Micah chapter 5 is also quoted here in verse 6. That's the same verse we were at last week, but in Micah chapter 5. Verse 2, and so we have Jesus being born in Bethlehem. If you remember with us last, if you're with us last week, we saw that Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of the decree of God, but also God worked through the census that, that took place in order to uh, register for tax purposes. Uh, God's people, or particularly Mary and Joseph, had to move, go to Bethlehem in order to be registered for tax purposes. So God used the governing rulers and authorities over that time to work and accomplish his prophetic word uh, in Matthew or in Micah chapter uh, 5, verse, verse 2, which we see displayed here in chapter uh, verse 6. And so this is why they're in Bethlehem, and this is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So that's the, the little recap uh, from the past couple weeks. Now, we meet a guy, Herod. Herod we met at the beginning of our study in, in Luke. Uh, we're gonna, we see him now here on, a, on prominent display. If you remember, he was historically known as Herod the First or, or Herod the Great. So some titles he had. Additionally, uh, he, he's called Herod the King of the Jews. 
Jews. And so uh, he's, he is from the line and lineage of uh, Esau. He's an Edomite. And so this, why this makes sense or why this is important to note is because uh, e- there's two brothers in the Old Testament that come from the line and lineage of, of Abraham, Jacob and Esau. So you have Abraham... He's the, the father of our faith, the first guy who gets saved outside of uh, uh, years of, of apostasy from God's people. God saves a man named Abraham who was a pagan guy, not Christian guy, not, did not grow up in a church home culture. There was no Hebrew people. He was the first Hebrew. He was the first guy, Abraham. He had a promised son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They're twin boys. You have these two boys. Why it's important is because they all come from the, from the line and lineage of Jacob or of Abraham, which is important because this is where the Jewish people come from. And so from Jacob and Esau, there was a promise that Jacob would rule, that Jacob would be the promised son through whom the Messiah would come, through whom the lineage of Jesus would come, and he would be the true king. That's what we've seen up to this point. Well, there's the other brother, Esau. How do you think he feels about that? He didn't really like that. He was the oldest. He was the firstborn, actually. Even though they were twins, he came out first. He was the firstborn. And so uh, he is. Uh, he and Jacob, I'm not going to unpack their entire story, but if you remember their story, we studied in Genesis, there was a lot of controversy, a lot of conflict between these two brothers, a lot of fighting. We're even told that in the womb, Jacob and Esau were wrestling and fighting with one another. Now, I want you to hear this. Just because God has, has chosen to use uh, a Jacob to bring about uh, the nation of Israel doesn't mean he was a good dude. He wasn't. Like, Jacob was a liar, a manipulator. He, 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 he used and ma- manipulated his brother Esau, which led to more and more conflict within the family. The point I want to make here is that there's been conflict between the, the, the nation of Esau or the Edomites and the tribe of Jacob or Israel since the very beginning. And so this is over who's the rightful king, who's the rightful heir, who's the rightful firstborn. And so here what we see is King Herod comes from the lineage of Esau. Jesus comes from the lineage of of Jacob, who actually got renamed to Israel. Right here. So the question is, who's the true king of the Jews? The answer is the Messiah, Jesus. But Herod has been been self-appointed king of the Jews up to this point. He's the self-appointed king of the Jews. And so he's not the real king. He's not even the real king in, in the Roman Empire. He is, he is, he's not above Caesar. He is just lording over uh, and responsible for the Jewish people in this particular area uh, uh, in, in Judea, right? And so this is the, the Roman Empire encompassed a lot of the known world at that time. And so he was in charge of this area, and he called himself the king of the Jews. This is important. This is why when Jesus is born and these wise men show up and say, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? It immediately says right after that he was troubled. Herod was troubled. This this was a threat to his his quote-unquote throne, that there was another king of the Jews born. Not, and he, knowing he wasn't the real king, and understood that there was a rightful king, uh, and that day was coming in his lifetime, and so he got, he got frustrated, he got troubled. We see later he gets very angry and wants to kill Jesus. And so, a little bit more about Herod. He was a ruthless king, historically. Ruthless king. He even murdered his own uh, wife uh, and several of his sons and, and other relatives. Like He seized power through murder and uh, vindictive, bitter behavior. And this is uh, not too far removed from the position that Esau had with his brother. Now, again, remember, Jacob was not right in his manipulation towards his brother Esau. Uh, Jacob had very much sinned against Esau, but that created enmity between these two brothers and these families. And even so, it kept going forward. And we're going to talk about, as we get into the next sermon series next week in Judges, at some point we're going to get into the reality if we don't forgive people from past sins, it can continue to move forward generationally through bitterness and, and hatred towards certain types and certain people. So this is what we see. This is the context here. Now, Jesus born king. These wise men show up saying, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Herod feels threatened. And so he therefore, Herod then goes, he, acquires of, he inquires of the religious leaders. They, he goes, hey, where are the religious leaders? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? This is what he says in verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ or Messiah 
was to be born. It's really interesting, right? So these wise men show up and they're looking for Jesus. And Herod here is like, okay, they're here. He's, they're, this guy, these guys are here to worship Jesus. Now, where is this Messiah to be born? Who does he turn to? He turns to the religious leaders. He goes, oh, he goes to the church. He goes, hey, can you open up the book and tell me where this guy is to be born? I know I don't follow it. I don't know. I, I'm supposed to. Like, kind of my upbringing, kind of my background, kind of part of, you know, Abraham's lineage. Like, kind of agree to that. But I'm like half in, half out in regards to my religious responsibilities. Is, is, this is Herod. So because he knows who to go to, the men who studied God's word, who were to, to tell where the Messiah is to be born. And then they turn to this obscure passage in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which we talked about at length last week, in Bethlehem. What's really interesting to me is that the, the religious leaders are quick to know where Jesus was to be born. Like, oh yeah, Bethlehem, we have a verse. Like, we, God told us. They're not, however, looking to go worship Jesus. This is very important. These wise men are the ones who are going, hey, where is he born so we can go worship him? And the religious leaders, the, 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 the biblical scholars, the, the pastors, the church people are sitting there going, oh yeah, we know, but we don't care. We're disinterested. They're disinterested in the Messiah that he was born. This should have been, instead of it bringing about joy and gladness in their heart to hear people were coming to, to meet Jesus, to see the Messiah, to hear about him, they should have been like, oh wait, let's join you, let's, let's get excited with you, let's go worship. But rather, Herod and the people, it says Herod and all of Jerusalem with him, they, became, they, be, they were troubled at this news that the Messiah, Jesus, was born. And so they did not care, the religious leaders, to go worship him, though they could tell, oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We should know that. Like, we have it. We have a verse. So that's Herod. Those are the religious leaders. Now let's look at the wise men. Verse 7. Then Herod summons the, the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So Herod is uh, interested now. He's interested in, in where Jesus is born, and we're going to find out later. We're not going to get to it in our text today because I didn't want to preach a two-hour sermon. I thought about it. I really did. I was going to, but then I, I opted out. Like, I really did. You asked the guys this morning. We cut it this morning only because we're like, two hours, I was like, that's two services. One, uh, we should just keep it going, you know? Uh, so here we go. Let me just tell you what happens. Uh, the reason why Herod wants to know where Jesus is being born is so he can kill him. He can kill him. And, but he says to them in secret, hey, where is this guy born? And he lies to them in verse 8. He says, he, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. That's a lie. It's a lie. He has no plan to worship him. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they're like, okay, I mean, they trust him. Why not? They don't know anything about this guy. He's not their king. He's just... They're visiting, and uh, they're like, okay, listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So they didn't have Google Maps. God was the Google Maps. He gave them a point and, and a star and said, that's how you get there. That's what happened. If it, there's a lot of debate over the star. What's going on here? How does this work? Is this a miracle? Absolutely. But I need us to understand, like, you trust the fact that Google somehow knows how to get you from point A to point B. None of you really know how, like, you know, any of that stuff works. And so you, you trust the, uh, the maps all the time. If you can trust the maps, you can trust God who rules over all maps. There was a star. He gave them a star. Here was the point. Go follow the star. They did. I don't know how he did it, and I'm okay with not knowing how that miracle works, but there was a star. And, and he, showed, he showed these men where Jesus was. They were searching for Jesus. And these men are called wise men in this text. Some of your translation may translate magi. So the wise men or these magi. Who were these men? Who were these obscure men from the quote-unquote east? Like they're from the, they were the east side boys. Like that's who they were. That's who they were. Uh, they, they were wise men. They're also really, uh, in, in other books of the Bible, we, we have more to, to see with these, these magi, what, what their profession was. Um, uh, the magi were pagan priests. It's essentially what they were. We see this in the books like the book of Daniel. Uh, they, they, they study things like astrology, 
So they were, you know, they had, uh, you know, they were studying the stars before it was cool. Like that's who they were. They were, they were open to dream interpretation, and they were, they would, they would interpret dreams. Uh, they, they would study sacred writings and and pursue wisdom and magic. That was who they were. They were, the, they were, they were modern day pagans, uh, paganism, pluralism, uh, the occult stuff like that. This is the the type of. Uh, um, uh, witchcraft, those type of things, in which or, or which these uh, educate, highly educated, likely um, uh, men would have been practicing these types of uh, spiritualities, and, and and it should be, it's fair to say in our day and age, like we we are very spiritual. Many people, if you don't have spiritual friends, then you may not have non-Christian friends, because most non-Christians are now spiritual. They're just like, eh, they're agnostic and spiritual. They believe in higher powers because they play with higher powers. It's just not godly powers. It's horoscopes and, and, and crystals and tarot cards and like they, they, they're, you know, it's, it's witchcraft. It's the occult. Like we have this in our city in our day and age. It's all demonic. And so these guys were, they, they dabbled in this or maybe they were even uh, teachers and philosophizers in this. They were the types that maybe would uh, be into uh, yoga, not the yoga where you're just stretching and just, you know, relaxing, but, but, but the chance to and praying and to, to the false gods. Like, and if you don't know anyone who's ever been in that, like, just ask me. I got several friends I can just introduce you to that no longer practice that type of yoga. Just like these men stopped practicing their demonic activity as well. We're going to see today. God's going to change them. But this is their background, highly spiritual, highly educated, and wealthy. Wealthy enough, and typically this is how it works. If you're wealthy uh, and you're not a Christian, you typically get wrapped up into this weird stuff. Like, it's true. You don't know what to do with your life and your money, so you just go, you spend it on, uh, you know, weird rich witchcraft crystals and, and other pagan stuff to make yourself feel spiritual and worth something. And you feel like I'm mocking them? I am. I am. And so this, these are these guys. They have more degrees than Fahrenheit. You know, they're, they're smart, educated guys. And they're, they're, if you think about it this way, they're like the, the professors at a liberal college. Or uh, I, I went to a, 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 a state school in the liberal arts department. I got my degree in English. All of the guys, all of the, the ladies there, non-Christian, very spiritual, anti-Bible people. That's kind of their background. Like, we had a philosophy teacher who he helped start what was called the atheist agenda. Like, his point was to, to rid out Christianity from all parts of life. That was his big goal. Moreover, this guy, uh, the professor, he would show up to any religious event that, was, that, that, that took place on campus so that he could ask questions after, and he trained a bunch of his minions to ask questions to try to debunk Christianity, debunk Christianity publicly. They never showed up to the Islam Association. I don't know why, but they always showed up to the, uh, the Christians. That's who they wanted to, to dethrone. A lot like Herod, but uh, from the position and in, in, in power point, um, more like these wise men. That's, that, that's their background. I'm not saying that's who they are in this moment. What I'm saying is that's their background. Think of someone highly educated, highly wealthy, and spiritual, just not Christian. These are these pagan philosopher types that we see, these wise men. These, this is who they are. Now, some of us, uh, if you look at your nativity, will tell me uh, there are three wise men. There are three wise men. Why? Because there are three gifts. We're going we're to talk about their gifts later. The text does not say there was three wise men. There could have been many wise men. There was only three gifts. And also, just since we're on the subject, they weren't there when Jesus was born. It starts off in verse, back in verse 1. It says, now after Jesus was born, and they were coming from the quote-unquote east. Now, where was this east, so to speak? It's likely Persia or, or modern-day Iran. And they don't have cars. And they don't have planes. And they don't have, like, any motorized vehicles. So it, they were walking from Iran all the way to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And so this is a long walk. Long walk from a, a non-Christian area. These pagan priests are coming to worship Jesus. We'll talk about that, how that happened and why their, their hearts would have changed here in a moment. But I want us to just get this, this scene. This could have been three. It could have been five. It could have been two. It's just more than one, and it, but it, it was a, a caravan, likely, of, of these guys who had heard about the Messiah, had done their study, and was doing some astrology into some spiritual practices, and God shows up and speaks to them, and they, their hearts are becoming changed. They want to go investigate who this God of the Jews is. 
So they go to Jerusalem where they would find out where this God would be. And they would go to the religious leaders and find out where their Messiah would be. And they, wanted, and they found out that he was the king. And they wanted to therefore go worship him. This is what's going on. These men traveling all the way from Persia. Matthew t- tells us they're from the, quote, from the east. The reason being is Matthew being a Hebrew Old Testament guy would have known and would have articulated uh, anytime there's the, the, the reference to east, oftentimes in the Old Testament, it's referring to God's people moving further and further and further and further away from God. Very much in the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. It says they went to the east. We see God's people continually moving to the east, further and further away more, uh, geographically, but then it, it represents them further and further walking away from God's word, will, and ways. So that's the, these are the Magi. They're, 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 they've walked far from God. They, they don't worship the God of the Bible. Uh, historically, uh, this, this group of people, they're from an, uh, a country that doesn't serve the God of the Bible. Uh, and they are moving towards Jerusalem because their hearts are being changed. And they're coming to seek and investigate the person of, of Jesus. That's what they're here. That's why they're going So what's the significance about this? What's the big historical significance? Why are we talking about all this history, all this stuff? Big significance is because everyone needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. This, see, God is not, uh, uh, he's not confined in any way. He sees these pagan men and says, I want you in my family. But I'm going to convert you and you're going to worship me as the true born king. Right now you're worshiping other gods. And, even, and then we see the religious leaders here in the text. They're not even worshiping either. They're, they're, they're practicing church, but they're not worshiping. So you can come, you can show up, you could give, you could play a part of Christianity uh, on the surface, but not actually have hearts of worship. We see God showing, uh, in, in the, using the foolishness of these, these men to shame the, the quote-unquote wise religious leaders who have all the knowledge, have all the degrees, ha- who know exactly where Jesus is born. These men who are far off, pagan Gentiles, God is saving, transforming, bringing them to himself because everybody needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. And this is what's being emphasized here in our text. God is drawing them to himself, literally showing up, giving them a star and saying, I want you in this location. I want you here. I want you to go see my son. I want you to worship Jesus. What's really interesting, too, is that, uh, that not only that they're pagans, but this is how it all began. This is how it always begins. People are born not knowing, loving, and trusting Jesus. God shows up and he's got to save them. This is how it began with Abraham. I mentioned it already. Abraham did not grow up in a, in a Christian religious background. He was a pagan non-Christian, just like some of you were. And then you got saved. Again, some of you are like, man, I get this. Like, this is my story. Now, he was not in a religious background at all, uh, or as far as like a monotheistic religious background in any stretch of the imagination. And then he gets saved. God shows up and saves the man Abraham. And then through him, through his bloodline, he says that he will give will come the true savior of the world. And so what we see here is uh, that Jesus is the one who saves. He saves pagans, he saves religious people, he saves all people. Second thing we need to see this here is that every religion needs Jesus. Every religion needs to come to Jesus. Every religion needs to surrender their worship to Jesus alone. Not add him on to their religious you know, you know, menu, but to worship Jesus supremely, alone, forsaking all others, giving your devotion and worship alone to Jesus. This is what we see happening with these devout spiritual men. Jesus is drawing them with the star and he's changing them. Number three we see here that's being emphasized is that both the poor and rich need Jesus. Last week we saw these these obscure shepherds, right? Poor shepherds in the field. God showed up via angel and said, hey, come worship my son, Jesus. Now he's showing up to these rich, affluent, educated, pagan dudes and he's saving them. Both the poor and rich need Jesus. That's the big idea. All people need Jesus to save them from their sins, to give them new life, to give them hope, to give them redemption, to restore their true humanity, and which would ultimately ends up in worshiping him alone, worshiping Jesus alone. 
Which leads us to verse 10, where we see their response as they worship Jesus with their gifts. And it's our call to do the same. We're to worship Jesus with your gifts, with our gifts. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. This is awesome. They really want to see Jesus. Like this should put a lot of Christians to shame, especially those in the text that we read about, these religious leaders. These guys who did not grow up in a Christian environment, did not grow up in the church home, did not grow up knowing that the, their traditions, did not know, grow up waiting for the Messiah, are now going, I cannot wait to meet Jesus. They're exceedingly joyful. I don't know, what do you think, what does that look like? They worshiped, like they, they, they rejoiced exceedingly. Like you picture that in your mind, with great joy. Like it's just the same word repeated and emphasized all over. They rejoiced with great joy. Like how do you do that? Like they were excited. They were excited. And going into the house, so see, he's not in the manger anymore. This is how you're, I know your nativity's wrong. It's like he wasn't in the manger anymore. He was at a house now. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and what did they do? They fell down and worshipped him. They didn't even greet anybody. They don't care about who's there. Like, why do you come to church? Do you come to worship Jesus or get good coffee? I know we have both, but we should be coming here to worship Jesus. You should care about very little other than worshiping Jesus. So they fall down on their face and worship him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, because Herod was going to kill Jesus, they departed to their own country by another way. See, what, what happens with these men, they, they, they come to Jesus to worship him, to worship him. And they fall down on their face, verse 11 says, and they worship him. It, they're excited. They have great joy. Something changed in these men from their past life. But what they, their, their paganism, their, their magi life, they've changed. Something's changed. They've been transformed, they're, and their lives are beginning to reflect it. They're excited to go meet Jesus, and they see Jesus, and they fall down on their face and worship him. Some of you understand this in the sense that you were, there was a day in your life where you cared nothing about Jesus. You didn't want to worship him. You didn't want to love him. You didn't want to serve him. You, did, you were neutral at best, antagonistic at worst, totally against him. And then you got saved. And you got transformed and you got changed. And now you're like, I want to be near Jesus. I want to know about Jesus. I want to read about Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. I want to love Jesus. I want people to worship Jesus. I want people to love Jesus. How, what happened? What, what, what changed? God intervened. The Holy Spirit was given to you. Your heart was changed. You were saved. You were transformed. And this is what's happened to these men. Their lives are being transformed before our very eyes. I want you to think about the furthest people from God that you know. I want you to think about them. And I want you to now know that God can transform them. If you didn't think that, maybe some of you, you kind of remembered that, you kind of hope for that, but these men are examples that God saves, transforms people, even people who are the furthest from him. And we see this, their life changing in their, their worship. They've exchanged their worship. They stopped worshiping the stars and they start worshiping the one who made the stars. They stopped worshiping the moon and start worshiping the one who made the moon. They stopped worshiping whatever they were worshiping, any other spirituality, and exchanged it for true, right worship of the one true and living God. Number two, we see that they bring costly gifts. They, 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 they're, they're, they're like, these don't mean much to me. Um, in, in light of who, who I'm in, whose presence I'm in. And so what we see is that they, they start to steward their gifting as a posture of worship. Moreover, they're willing to travel a great distance to get to Jesus. Like they go from Persia, likely, to Jerusalem. Like they, they're, 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 they're whatever, however I need to get there, I'm going to get there. That's them. 
These, these, they're kind of likely, I just thought of this in, in our day and age, these would be people who come to faith and they have great affluence and they're like, I want to know more about Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy all the commentaries. I'm going to read all the books. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to investigate this myself. And then, and then they get saved, they get changed, and, they, they, and then they're like, I'm going to start funding other people who can investigate the claims of Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start funding churches, ministries. I want other people. I'm going to steward my stuff, my wealth, uh, to, to, the, to the furthering of the worship of Jesus. And whether it be through, through financial, financially overcoming great costs or their travel, they go great, great distances. Additionally, we see that now they're becoming obedient to God. How so? Well, afterwards, they're warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They didn't question him. They didn't question God. They said, okay, we got a new king, new God, new worship. We, uh, we take our cues from you. Don't go back home. Don't go to Herod. All right, no questions asked. Not going to Herod. I'm gonna, we're going to go around. They don't know exactly what's going to happen. God speaks to them, tells them to go back home another way. And so they obey. See, I want you to see this. These are guys whose lives are changing. Their worship, their, 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 their stewardship, the length they're willing to go, to travel, their obedience to God after the dream. See, Christian, Christianity is about worshiping Jesus. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's worshiping Jesus. And so we give our lives to Jesus. We give our sins to Jesus. Why? So we unto our worship of him. This is what Christianity is. It starts with a heart, mind change. And God gives us the strength and power to now worship him and steward our lives uh, that it's consistent to his word, will, and ways. See, when Jesus says we're to love him with all our heart, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves, what's happening is he's changing our heart, changing our mind, and then he's, he's, he's empowering our strength he's to do things. We're to do things uh, to, in, in ways that honor him. Uh, we're to do the things he says to do in obedience to him. And we're also to do things and steward things, steward our stuff and our life in order, unto the worship of him. And what that looks like is, is, is loving people like Jesus loved him. So it means to love your neighbor as yourself. We, we love according to God's word, will, and ways. This is, see, Christianity encompasses not just our heart and our mind, but our, but our time, our talent, our treasure, and our relationships. We see this all taking place here with these wise men. For these men have met Jesus, though a baby. They have, they have heard from God through a dream. They've seen his mighty work, handiwork in the sky. And we're told the psalmist actually tells us uh, that, that, that day by day pours out speech. Night by night reveals knowledge, which means this, that God is always speaking. God is wanting to speak to us. And we're told in Hebrews that he has, he has spoke finally through his son, Jesus, whom these men have come to worship. And guess what? They're really excited about that. And this is what my hope and prayer for us that, that would be as we enter into a new year, that we'd be the type of people who get really, really excited to worship Jesus. Get excited about it. We, we, would, we would be known for rejoicing exceedingly with great joy when it comes to Jesus. The person and work of Jesus, we'd be the type of people who are like, excited, great joy, we got that verse. That's our verse. We want that one. We're excited about that. We're excited about Jesus. Moreover, we should get really, really excited also when people meet Jesus. These religious leaders aren't really excited that the pagan Gentiles are coming to worship Jesus. You should be. Like when people who, are, who you think would never enter the doors of a church or become Christian and be saved, and they get saved, you should rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Be really excited. Well, they don't have their whole life fixed yet. Yeah, neither do you, and neither do they. Like, that's the whole thing. I heard someone recently tell me that, yeah, you know, church is just full of hypocrites. And I just laughed. I really did. Because, see, I, I asked them, that, they're like, we don't come to church because church is full of hypocrites. I said, okay, well, do you go to the hospital because everyone's sick? Or do you just, do you avoid hospitals, I mean, because everyone is sick at the hospital? Like, just a bunch of sick people. Like, 100% of the people at the hospital seem to be sick. Some of them in surgery. Some of them dying. So it's just really, really awful. When you go to the hospital, like, everyone is sick. You're like, they're like, I don't understand why you're saying this. Obviously, everyone should be sick at a hospital. That's what a hospital exists for. I said, exactly. Jesus only saves hypocrites. Welcome. Welcome to hypocritical Christianity. It's called the church. There's only one way, and that's through Jesus, and all of us are sinners and hypocrites. And you're like, really? Yes, all of us. If you're like, I'm not, well, you just lied. You are. You are. Like, if you're, someone says the church is full of hypocrites, like, man, actually, you got a good one. Like, you nailed it. Like, that's actually, well, that guy said this and did this other thing. Like, yeah, like, he should repent 
There should be church discipline. But to find out that the church is full of sinners, huh, welcome to church. It's the only ones that exist. Churches that are full of sinners. And so what we see here is that these men aren't cleaning their lives up to come to Jesus. They just came to Jesus and Jesus is changing them. We should get really excited when people come to Jesus, even if they're on day one following Jesus. Don't expect their lives to be changed totally. Their, their hearts get changed. They, their worship gets changed. They focus on Jesus. And if they submit to his word in ways as the church of Jesus should, what happens? Transformation. Transformation. They become less hypocritical, more Christ-like, and that's what we want, and that's ideal. But Jesus is the one who changes us, all of us. And this is what we should be get really, really excited about. So my prayer next is for us next year is that we get really excited to worship Jesus. And we really love coming together corporately to, to worship Jesus. Then we really love individually worshiping Jesus. And we'd really enjoy and be excited about, even though it's difficult, worshiping Jesus in our families and in our community groups and in our everyday life and with our time and with our talent and with our treasure. And that God would continue to cultivate and build a culture here in the city of San Antonio through our church that worships Jesus. And I'm not just talking about singing. Not, though I am speaking of song, I'm not just talking about Bible reading, though I'm speaking about knowing, loving, trusting, and studying God's word, but living transformed lives that affect real people in real time in our real city that change for real eternity. That's what we're looking at. And so in order to do so, uh, one of the things that we, we're, we see here is that they worship, or not one order to do so, but what we see happening here is that they worship with their gifts. This is what we see. We see this demonstration. Now let's look at the, these three gifts that these however many men uh, gave to Jesus. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts. Why, why, why are these gifts unique? Well, gold is, is the most obvious. Gold is, is representative of Jesus being king. It's, the, it's, it's king. It's the biggest form of wealth. Uh, they're, they're giving their gold, their wealth to Jesus. This shows that they honor him and they're worshiping him as their king. We saw just this few verses back in, in verse 2, Jesus was, quote, born king. So Herod was made to be king. Jesus was born king. These men go, we're going to worship you as king, and we're going to bring you gifts. The first gift is gold, meaning that you are a king, Jesus. We identify and we, we worship you as our king. You now rule our life. We now submit to you. We're giving you our gold. That's what they're doing here. Jesus has now become the central, center part of their life. They bring their gold. And this is what we usually see when, with money. Why? Why money, the, the, the love of money is not, or sorry, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not evil. But loving it more than Jesus is. So what you often see is that if you worship, whoever you worship is where, and wherever you worship is where you, you're willing to let your money go to and, and be, be, be generous or free and give towards. Now, I praise be to God for this church. We are, the, we are a very generous church. Can't wait till the very end where Pastor Alex is to share our update on our Christmas giving. But again, I'm trying not to go to our sermons, so i got to stay tethered to this. Uh, but we are very generous. We worship well with our, our, uh, with our, with our resources, and I praise God for that. But what we see here is the reason why they're bringing gold is because Jesus is king. Number two, frankincense. What is frankincense? This is, uh, frankincense shows us that Jesus is our priest. What I mean by this, uh, frankincense is, is an incense. For those of you who don't know incense, just think candle, modern day, like that. And a lot of people don't burn incense these days. But old school candle, that's what it is. And so if you got someone a candle for Christmas, just know you're kind of like the wise men, just saying. Just saying, you know, like it's awesome. If you received one, just that person who gave it to you, they're like the wise men. It's awesome. And so, uh, the Old Testament, to, or sorry, in Revelation, we're told that that the incense or, or the prayers of the saints of God's people are like incense to the nostrils of God. Like He loves to smell your prayers. I know that might sound weird, but basically, if you got a good candle and you love the the, the scent of that candle, that's how God thinks of your prayers. Hopefully that makes you want to pray more, talk to him more, because he loves hearing you, not just hearing you, but it creates, if you ever smell something that smells really good, like it, it makes you happy. You get joyful. You get really excited. I love walking into a room that smells good, right? You've ever walked in a room that smells bad? Anyone? Well, if you have, then you don't feel like your, your emotional state is higher, right? You feel like a little more discouraged, a little more gloomy, a little more uh, angry or irritated, right? Room smells great when you walk in, you're like, whew, this is awesome. Good day. We're excited about this. 
That's what Christian prayers are. They, 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 they travel up to the nostrils of our Lord God, and he loves the smell of the prayers of his people. See, the Old Testament, they were in the altar, or they would go in and they'd write, light the altar of incense. The priest would do this. What the priest, Old Testament priest was doing was he was, the inner, he was, he was mediating between God and his people. So when they offer him frankincense, so this incense they offer him, they're not just like, hey, here's a cool candle, but what they're stating and symbolizing and showing is that you, Jesus, are our mediator. This is what it shows us, that Jesus is the true mediator between God and man. And we see this in 1 Timothy 2, 5, that it says that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man, Jesus Christ. That is him. Moreover, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 6 then tells us that he is the ransom. He gave his life as a ransom, meaning he stood our place for our sins. He paid for our, our, our captivity to remove us from captivity, to save us and seal us and redeem us. Jesus stands in our place for our sins on the cross to save us, to redeem us, to buy us back, to mediate between God and man on our behalf. Which leads us to myrrh, which is a very obscure gift. If you don't know what myrrh is, if you gave anyone myrrh, then you might not be that cool of a gift. Myrrh is not a great gift. I mean, it's a great gift, but like it's weird. Except for in this situation. Myrrh is used in embalming fluid for the dead. That's why it would be weird to give it as a gift. Now, why is it not weird that they gave it to King Jesus? Because Jesus wasn't born to simply just live through life, have a good life, and get a few degrees and have a couple kids and, you know, high five, good job, let's go. No, actually, he, he never marries, has no kids, and then gets lied about, sold out, brutally beaten, murdered, and killed. Jesus was born to die. Myrrh shows us that Jesus is not just our, our king, we see gold, he's not just our priest, he mediates between God and man, but he is our sacrifice or our substitute. All of these gifts are foreshadowing the cross of Christ, that Jesus was born to die in the place of sinners for the salvation of those who would believe. The birth of Jesus is literally the preparation for that great sacrifice. He's giving a fleshy body, a human body. He's given a brain, a spinal column, a, 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 the, the full array of human uh, emotions and, and feeling and so that he could be fully present when he stood the place of sinners and being the sacrifice for mankind. So this is, these presents, these gifts, point to the great news of Christianity. That the, the, the news that we heard last week, the good news that is, quote, for all types of people, from poor shepherds to educated wise men. And this is the news that Jesus is king. This is the news that he was born without sin. This is the news that he stood our place on the cross for sinners to save, to be our substitute and our sacrifice. This is the news that Jesus, the, all those who believe in him, all those who trust in him, all those who look to the cross of Christ and say, my sin, my savior will be saved. We're saved unto worship of him. We believe this, good, this is good news, this is great news, it's for anyone and everyone who looks upon Jesus and believes can be saved. Herod is not interested in Jesus. Some in our world are not interested in Jesus. They're not interested, or they're only interested like Herod enough to know to how do we snuff this Christianity out, how do we shut it down, how do we cancel it, how do we deplatform it, how do we get this news off the air, how do we shut down Jesus and his church. There are people out there in our day, in our city, in our nation, in our age, in this world, that, that's their goal and that's their objective, to be like Herod. And if they can't kill Jesus, they want to kill either Christians or the message or just stop Christianity from spreading. And then there are others who are, just, who, are, who are not even interested in Jesus at all. Sadly, some are, are like these religious leaders who knew about the birth of Christ, but they were not interested. They didn't want to go worship Jesus. They could just give you information about Jesus. See, the Bible is not just a source of information, but of transformation. This information is to change us, to renew our mind. And so some in our world are like these pagan priests, these magi who are not yet converted, who are going to be converted. God wants to save all types of people. 
And when, when they, he does save them, you just, we start seeing people's lives get changed and transformed. They bring their gifts to Jesus. They see Jesus as their king, as their priest, their substitute, their sacrifice, their savior. They, they, they worship Jesus. They surrender to Jesus. They obey Jesus. And that's the real reality. It's all of us have to ask the question is, is, will we either worship Jesus or rebel against Jesus? We'll have two options. So may this year for us, may it be a, a year that mar- our life is marked with worshiping Jesus with great joy and gladness with our whole entire lives, stewarding our, our time, our talent, our treasure, which means we love him, we love his word, means we seek to be trained in the word of God, to read the word of God, to know the word of God. Our lives are marked with prayer so that uh, heaven smells really, really great with our prayers. Uh, and uh, if you don't, you don't pray, man, we'd love to teach you how to pray. Um, Furthermore, we, from there, that position, we surrender to God's word, his will and ways, and we listen to his word. We obey his word just like they did in the dream. And then we seek to make him known. These magi showed up. Remember, they showed up to the city of Jerusalem like, hey, where's Jesus? Like the whole city began to know that Jesus was born king because these magi showed up. They made him known publicly. Christianity is not a private religion. It is a public religion. We don't have a private faith. We have a public faith. Period. That's what it is. And so what, we, what I pray that we will see this year is that, is that just this unashamed nature in the heart and mind of our church to worship Jesus with our, with our whole being, heralding the good news of who he is, where we live, work, and play. And what we start to see is others who are far off like these magi get saved, get changed, get transformed. And need us to understand this as we enter this new year. There are people like Herod in positions of power even in our city who want to legislate evil in our country, in our day, in our age. And they want to do what Herod is going to do later in verse 16 and kill all the, well, he kills all the firstborn male children uh, or all the male children under the age of two so that he can hopefully kill Jesus in doing that. There are rulers and leaders in our nation, in our day, in our age that, that, that really do want Christianity to not progress forward and move in power. So we do really live in an age where there is opposition to what we believe and hold true. You might be lied about. You might be told that you're a a narrow-minded bigot. Uh, You might be called some sort of uh, whatever the new pejorative will be for Christian. Like you might get called these things. I need us to not care at all what anyone thinks of you, says of you. And please, if they lie about you, just let them have the lie. You don't need to defend yourself publicly for being a Christian. Like, you don't have to defend the, the ferociousness of a lion. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. You don't have to, you don't have to defend the, the, the ferociousness of a lion. You just got to let him out of the cage. You don't have to defend Jesus. Let, just speak the truth of who he is. Let him out of the cage. Let him roam. Let him move with power. Who cares what other people think of you? I get it. It's going to hurt, especially when they're close to you. They're friends of you. They're families uh, of you. But stay tethered to Jesus, his word, will, and ways, and worship of him. And know this, there are those like Herod who, are, who, who, who would like to silence the spread of the gospel in our nation, in our city. Moreover, there are religious leaders, like we see in our text, that are cowards that don't say anything. You have this on both the, the, the Catholic perspective and the Protestant perspective. What, what ends up happening is they simply not interested in obedience to Jesus in his word. So what they began to do is edit the scriptures and fall in line to the cultural spirit of the age. We've seen this with the Pope in our day and age. It's very clear. Apostasy is rampant in our nation. And so you're going to find that there are religious leaders, like we see in this text, that have information but don't have transformation. They have information but don't care about worshiping with the, the they, don't, they don't want to worship God, the God of the Bible. They want to use the Bible to manipulate, twist, and distort it, just like Satan and demons would do to lead God's people astray. They're called wolves. The Bible, the New Testament teaches us of these. And so somehow, in, some, in, in, in different ways, there are what, what Jesus would call hired hands at the helm of, of churches that let in wolves in to deceive God's people. And leading us to what I believe is becoming a great generational apostasy that we're seeing it right before our very eyes. So beginning next week, we're going to start a new book of the Bible called Judges. 
And Judges is basically a case study of what happens when a nation, when, when a people of God, when the people of God forsake his word, will, and ways and rebel against him. We're going to see it over and over and over again. This, there's no heroes in this book. It's just continually, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Because the more you move away from the God of the Bible, the more you, you surrender to the culture rather than to obedience to his word, will, and ways, the further and further society and nations crumble and cripple. So pray for me. <laughs> Next week could be the beginning of one of the most uh, chaotic and most controversial sermon series we've ever had. Pray for me. Pray for your elders. And so through the chaos, however, I believe God's going to save people. Because he always does, just like these magi, just like these wise men. So there's nothing to fear in our day. There's nothing, to, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't give ear to the cultural noise of our generation, but give your heart to God and let him transform and renew your mind, and it, which means that we are trained in his word, will, and ways, submitting to him, loving him, worshiping him, and enjoying him. That's what next year is going to be marked with. Worship Jesus and everything else will take care of itself. Stay tethered to Jesus and everything else will take care of itself. Look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the founder of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you. He was shamed for you. And now he's risen victorious in glory, in glory for you. And you are his child. You are his adopted son, his adopted daughter. And our response is looking to him, worshiping him, obeying him, staying tethered to him, following him. And if you've ever looked up at the sun out in the sky, you've looked up in the, in the, in the sun, you've looked at it, and it's just like your eyes got blinded. You remember that eclipse? Some of you looked at it without goggles or whatever. Like those of you who burned your eyes. You looked, after you're looking at the sun for quite some time, you look around and everything is spotty and you can't see very well, Right? When we look at Christ the Son and fix our eyes on him, all the cares of this world are eclipsed by the glory that has been revealed by the Son of God. This is what worship is. It's not all happy feelings. It's no matter what the circumstance and situation you are in in life, you look up to the Son and let him eclipse everything else out. Trusting him, obeying him, loving him, following him. I love you, church. I'm excited to be your pastor, one of your pastors. I mean, it's an honor to preach God's word each week. I'm so excited about what God is doing in our church, in the lives of its people, and also what he's going to do next year. And so let's keep our eyes focused on Jesus. We're a very blessed church. We, should, we have a lot to celebrate, a lot to be excited about. We're going to respond now. Pastor Alex is going to come lead us through communion, and then we're going to sing. Let's take communion like Jesus has died in our place for our sins because he has. And let's sing and rejoice like he's alive and risen and ruling and reigning because he is. Jesus, you are our God. You are our king. We worship you. We submit to you all of our hearts, all of our mind, and all of our strength. We ask that you would empower us to love you with, with, our, with our lives, with our time, our talent, our treasure. We ask that you would continue to uh, help us fix our eyes on you, Jesus, no matter what our situation, what our circumstances, and may we worship you in, 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 with, in spirit and in truth. Now, as we respond right now, may you do a work in our heart and our mind that fills us with great, exceeding joy. As we eat of the elements and as we sing the songs, may, may your spirit abound in us in a mighty, powerful, transformative way. And may we leave here changed, Lord Jesus. Send us out to be your ambassadors where we live, work, and play. We love you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.